chapter 14, verse 1 through 11. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priest and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, he was reclining at table. A woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment and pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, Why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them but you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priest in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money, and he sought an opportunity to betray him. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. If you would bow with me. Father, we thank you for your word, and we pray for a heart to understand and to believe and to treasure what you treasure and to give you honor where you deserve honor in everything, and so we want to do that. Pray that we would examine our own lives to see um, where we are and what we're doing and try to discern how we might uh, offer ourselves back to you in a way that would be pleasing and, and honoring to you. In Christ's name, amen. So we are in chapter uh, 14 and 15, kind of coming to that place where you will see the betrayal, which you see it, uh, the, the beginnings of that here, and then the arrest and trial and crucifixion of Jesus. So Everything is happening as he said. And if you, I mean, if you've read, we've spoken of this, but like this is also, sometimes you'll hear people say, this is called the passion, that period. And so that means to suffer. And he's told them three times in Mark, I'm going to be, you know, delivered over, I'm going to suffer, then die, and then, of course, I'll be raised again. But we understand that he is, this is where he is and where, what he's doing. I mean, this is exactly what he had come to do. And he knew that all along. It was not confusing uh, to him. And so today we're going to see that in the midst of like his impending suffering, I mean, it is imminent. It's like there. You're, it is time. In the midst of that, uh, knowing that he is about to die, communicating that he is about to die, that he's going to suffer not just physical, but this uh, spiritual uh, suffering that's going to take place, knowing all those things in the midst of it, there is this moment of great beauty that is going to be rehearsed now that you see. It will be spoken of. And this moment of great beauty will be done by one that you're not thinking will do it. And that's kind of what's going on here today. You know, sometimes you think about in your life moments of darkness. Maybe you can remember something where it was sad. Maybe you're younger and you said, I don't really remember anything sad except for maybe uh, 
you know, my brother or sister broke a toy that I had, or they did this or that, you know, something like that. But some of you may have experienced great tragic events in your life, and, you know, maybe there were moments in the, the tragedy that as you reflected on it or even re- were able to see in that moment, you could see kind of the, this quiet in the midst of all the chaos and all the darkness, and you can remember a thing of beauty kind of in that moment. Uh, I was thinking about this this week, kind of things like that, and I, it did make me think about my childhood and my uh, grandfather, who was, uh, in a way, at that time, probably a big part of the center of my life, you know, and I, I remember he was, tw- uh, I was 12, and he passed away suddenly, and it was a difficult time for us, and I, I, it, it was really, really difficult, and I would, for days after and years after, you know, think about him and consider him, and still to this day, we tell stories about him. He was a big part of our, um, like I said, of our life. And uh, in the midst of that tragedy in our family, one of our neighbors showed up. And she uh, served tirelessly our family through that time. She was like washing dishes, making sure everybody was fed, providing for everything. Like you, you almost thought, well, I can't believe it, that in the midst of all of that, like, when I look back over that event, like she does kind of rise as this little thing to put a spotlight on and say she gave her life in service to us, and it was a beautiful thing. Uh, Karen Perkins sent me not too long ago um, a video of people that had gathered at their house outside singing hymns as he was uh, on his way to, to being with the Lord, you know, and it's this little light, this glimmer of something where you're like, in the midst of all of that, it was sad. sad. It was difficult. It was dark. But yet in the midst of that, there's this glimmer of light. And it's, it's a beautiful thing. Because this glimmer of light that we're studying about this moment is a proclamation that like this person is proclaiming, still involved in proclaiming to us, he had come to die and he was worthy of our worship for dying. You know, he came to give his life and he's worthy of us responding back and wanting to give him glory. And so when I think about these moments, and I think about this moment, the impending death of Jesus right there, this woman with this, in a profound way, she, she estimated the worth of Jesus and his work. And she responded. And that's a big deal. And it's something to learn from and to consider as you think about your life and all that's going on. Again, in the midst of betrayal, in the midst of people wanting to destroy Jesus and coming up with ways to do it, she serves as someone that's an example to us. Now, these, there's a book in between, or bookends between the heart of the message, which I think is about this woman. But you see, I just want you to see them so you know. In verse 1 and 2, you're going to see that these religious leaders are coming to kill him. They want to do it in stealth, they want to do it almost quickly, quietly, and get it done and have it uh, done well. Uh, but also in the midst of that, in verse 10 and 11, you have one in Jesus' inner circle, Judas Iscariot, and he is wanting, uh, he has he's sought a way to betray Jesus. So all of that's going on around the heart of this passage, which is someone demonstrating a sacrifice of faith. That's what Edwards calls it in his commentary. This is a sacrifice of faith, and it's bracketed in 
by people who are living in a direct opposite way. Um, he wrote in one of his things, I thought it was interesting, the costly ointment of the woman is an exemplary sacrifice of faith, whereas the plot of Judas to betray his master for a sum of money is a sacrifice of faith in the opposite and worst sense of the term. So that's, I mean, that just helps you think about that and consider it and hopefully learn from it as you consider your own life. So that's at the heart of this today. It's a sacrifice. It's a sacrifice of faith that this woman, woman is offering. But before we go there, we're going to look at those verses, verse 1 and 2 and 10 and 11, and say, like, what's kind of wraps around this story? Because it is helpful sometimes to see the darkness around this story so that you can, like, kind of see the light pop up and say, oh, wow, this is shocking. So let's look at verse 1 and the time. It's the time of Passover. Uh, it, that takes you back to Exodus 12. If you go back and, and uh, study about Passover, you know that's Exodus 12 is where that is. And uh, the first Passover was given uh, by God to the people as a means of uh, a substitute standing in their place. A one-year-old uh, unblemished lamb or goat would be was was placed uh, in the place of the people so that the firstborn of that family would survive the night when the angel of death would come over Egypt where they were the people of God were he would come over Egypt and um, he would kill the firstborn of Egypt and preserve the firstborn of the people and so the Passover was a big deal it was a big deal to be reminded of because you kind of had to stop and consider every year, God redeemed us. God rescued us. And you, they set up a time every year uh, in the spring of the year, kind of in between March or April, like somewhere in that, depending on how it fell on the calendar. And there was this week-long event after called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And what they did was, uh, because that night when the first Passover took place, that they had to leave before the bread could rise, they would perpetually remind themselves of the, the speed at which this had to take place. And so the Passover was both kind of this meal, but also encompassed this whole week of celebration. And all of Israel would come. They would come to Jerusalem. It was almost like a pilgrimage there. They would come uh, together uh, for this time. And so uh, the day before Jesus is going to be, um, Mark dates the crucifixion on the day before Sabbath, which is on a Saturday. So he's going to be crucified on a Friday. And uh, the Last Supper is the night before on Thursday. So the day before the Passover would be, in a way, you could say, on Wednesday. And um, that's kind of how you, you would want to read this. So, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest Jesus by uh, him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar for, for the, or from the people. So what's going on here is they're looking for a way to destroy Jesus at this time, but not actually right at this time. Uh, they didn't really want, I mean, this time period was a big deal in Jewish life. Everybody came, and uh, everybody was thinking about salvation. And I don't know if you're like that. I don't know, it would be like growing up in some churches where they would have revivals. And it's like during that time, everybody's thinking about revivals coming, thinking about Jesus, thinking about salvation, thinking about people uh, uh, being rescued from their sins, thinking about their own testimony. Well, all that's going on, and then these uh, the Jewish people were thinking about a Messiah that would show up and rescue them, and another Exodus, a new Exodus 
uh, that would re- rescue them from Rome and all of the powers of evil uh, there. And so everybody's thinking about that. And, and since Jesus was at the center of that conversation, they didn't want to get him, you know, to ha- have anything happen to him during that time because if the people revolted, everything that the Jewish leaders had there in Jerusalem would be destroyed too. They knew that Rome would not put up with that. And so they're trying to do this in a quiet way. They don't really want to do it this week, but they need it done really quick. And they wanted it dealt with and done. And so that is um, something to help us understand it. Now, the other thing that you have to think about in that, uh, they wanted it done quickly, almost like the unleavened bread thing. We need to move really quick and all this uh, happen in a very quick way. And in God's providence... Uh, what you're going to see is Jesus, who was called the Passover lamb, right? God in his providence is going to orchestrate it in such a way that what they did not want to happen would happen so that everybody would know who he was, what he came to do. And it would be forever kind of tied to that. And every time that we take the Lord's Supper, we're reminded, right, of that Jesus is the one who was, who was the substitute for the people to save them from their sins. He was going to take them or take all who would believe in him, uh, not through the Red Sea. Uh, in a much greater way, he was going to rescue them, not just from Egypt or for, from Rome, but from the powers of hell itself. He was going to do it. And so all of this is taking place and everyone is there and the Romans are ready and everybody gets prepared for a revolt. and They want to keep it all down. And yet we have to say to ourselves that God orchestrates the events of history to make sure that it, in a, the perfect time, Jesus would come and die. Uh, in your study guide this week, there were some verses that helped you think about uh, the, the timing of God. Like, that's an important thing for us to understand. But I wanted you to hear from Acts 2, 23 to 24. And what happens there is when they're preaching to the people about what happened, they said, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. So this betrayal begins in all of this thing. Um, although those men are culpable for all their evil acts, this is God's plan all along the way. And that... That betrayal, which is hard, begins with the 12. You're like, man, Judas among the 12, he's going to take Jesus out. And uh, Edwards says this, proximity to Jesus does not guarantee faithfulness. And I think you have to, in your own life, in the life of your children, ask yourself, like, don't get, like, think about that. Just because you're close to all these spiritual things, does not mean that you're, you are a servant of Jesus, that you love Jesus, that you are following Jesus, that you want to, you treasure Jesus. And so we see that in the life of Judas Iscariot. In verse 10 and 11, we see as we go forward that Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money, and he sought an opportunity to betray him. I mean, this is really, really difficult to see because you would think that he would know how, like, I mean, amazing that Jesus was and all the work that he had done and all that he had promised and how truthful and 
and how faithful and all, all of those things that Jesus was. And yet, there is this struggle that goes on and he, he gives himself over, you might say, and, and he's taken over in another sense. And Luke 22, 3 says, then Satan entered into Judas. You know, it, it's, there's something there. We know that he was numbered among the twelve, but I believe it's in John's Gospel where it's like he was destined for this. John 13, 2, during the supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas uh, uh, Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. It's like this is already going on. This has the feeling of like uh, the earliest kind of you know, rebellion of mankind with Adam and Eve in the garden where they're listened to the call of the evil one. So all of that saying, like this is a, a reprehensible thing. It's premeditated. He had been around all of the stuff about Christ and everything that he had said, and yet he walks away. And really, we're going to see ultimately he's going to take his own life at the end of it. So it is a dark moment. This, like I said, the surrounding storm is really dark. That's what you could say in the midst of this. There is this storm around them, and it is really dark. And some people say, what were Judas's motivations? They'll go into long discussions over it. I remember being in college and having a guy, he was off at like a, some kind of school, like a theological school or whatever, and he comes back. And like his, the whole Sunday school lesson was about what might Judas have been taught, thinking, you know? Now, looking back, I'm like, we don't know. You know, like, we don't know. All we know is, is that Judas betrayed him and that Judas received money for betraying him. We do know that the Scripture says he was a thief and the treasurer of the group. And so we know those things. We don't know much. Much more than that, you're speculating. But we do know he does do that. And it is a dark, dark moment. And so we, we understand that and we think about it and, and kind of understand what is going on. So that Judas is not a victim or a pawn. He is doing what he wants to do. And yet it fits perfectly within the plan of God. Perfectly within its timing. God's purposes are taking place. This is very similar to Genesis 50-20. If you know the story of Joseph with his 12 brothers, or 11 other brothers, we say, but he says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about uh, uh, that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So what is he saying? He's saying like, even the worst things, the darkest moments in people's lives, where you look at stuff and you say, I can't believe what has taken place. I can't believe what was done to them. God is working out his plan. I think you sometimes have to stop too and say, those dark threads that you might say, well, you would say, I don't even say, I wouldn't say you're responsible for them. They're just dark threads in your life. God is orchestrating even the dark threads. And he has a thing of beauty that he's accomplishing, and we don't always understand that. And it doesn't always make us happy to think about it, and we don't even want to like repeat it, but we have to say God is working in all of it. His timing is perfect. His timing is perfect with his son. His timing is perfect with you, and God is working out his plan. But even though like all that's going on, at the heart of this, at the heart of this, we're going to see this woman's sacrifice. And she is going to be someone that we would want to, to listen to. Listen to the story of her life. Consider it uh, for ourselves. Look at verse 3. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, and he was reclining at, uh, at this table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over 
his head. You see this, there's a tenderness to this story. She enters into that moment really outside of what she would ordinarily do and she steps in and you see in the midst of people trying to destroy Jesus, kill Jesus, uh, betray Jesus, you have this woman uh, with this powerful picture of one who is offering something priceless. Bethany is a couple of miles away. Jesus has been going back there from Jerusalem back to Bethany, Jerusalem uh, back to Bethany. And so that's kind of the place that he has set his, as his place there. He's not in the heart of the city all of the time. And um, he's sitting there at a house of someone, and this woman walks in. And when she does, she, she comes in, and even though it's, it's tender and it's beautiful and all those things, she does something she was, they were not thinking she should do. I mean, nobody would say, oh, a group of Jewish men sitting there together, should this woman come in and do anything? Well, some, I read this week, uh, other than serving food, no. If she wasn't asked to do something in that culture at that time, she should not have been doing it. She was kind of intruding on the moment. And, um, but Jesus is going to say about that, like th- she is demonstrating a powerful faith in the midst of that. So, as you're thinking about what she does, she gives something really expensive. This, this, I mean, it's, a, it's one of those things where you're like, man, even when you think about it for a moment, like this pure nard, like when they, when they value it, it's valued like 300 denarii. That's how they value it. Uh, it's, it's a year's wage. It was one of those things where you say it would be worth more than, if you had a normal wage in Palestine, it would be like a year's worth of earnings that this lady is going to, that she's going to give to Jesus, you might say, or offer to Jesus. Um, and I think that's important to see. Because not only is that worth that, that would be, for the most part, a year's wage of a male working in that society. The, the average woman would not have a job like an ordinary job that was like making a, a wage. She would have been working very hard, but not in that way. And so for her to have something of that value, it's not like she had been making this money her whole life, probably, uh, and stored it all up. It was Generally, she would not have made uh, much money, if any. And so many believe that it was probably passed down to her. She had been holding on to something that was passed down, maybe the most priceless thing in their family. If you were thinking about uh, your family, and you thought about what was the thing of most value, you know? Uh, for some of you in this kind of culture, it might be uh, a field, land, you know? And you say, if, we, if, if our family were to give the thing that's most uh, valuable to us, it would be that. Some of you, it might be your home. Some of you, it might have been some special uh, piece of jewelry from somebody in your family. Some of you, it might be your retirement account, you know, whatever it might be, in this case, it was something of great value. And, and, and again, I don't know, I mean, if we know exactly everything about how she did it, but we do know that when she smashed that jar, it would never be used again. It was not a drop from the jar. It was the whole jar. And she offers that to Jesus. It's... um. And I think that's important to say. She offered it to him without any thought. 
And the other thing is, is when you think about even this situation, there's this, Jesus is outside the city. He's in a place with this, this leper, you know? Like, that, that's something to think about. Like, he, he may have been restored back to the community, but certainly someone you'd be like, do I want to enter into that? And then there's this woman, and you're thinking, man, is she like a, I mean, this is strange. I mean, what is she doing? And, and all of that is going on, and you kind of think about it, and you think, as with all of Jesus' life, it, so many times, it's what, not what you think it would be like. I think sometimes even in Christianity, in your life as a Christian, sometimes uh, you want to really be careful, because if you think you're really prominent, a real prominent Christian in a real prominent place and a really prominent whatever, that just doesn't look like what you ordinarily see uh, in the life of the disciples and in the life of those who followed Jesus and were close to him. And so I think that's important. Now, verse 4. Let's look one more thing. Okay. Verse 4. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and give it to the poor. So they're, they're asking again, like, what is going on? But when they ask this question, they are angry. I mean, they are. They're really angry. Like, the, the, the picture here is that they are so angry that they're like, you know, like, almost like a, a bull, like, sitting and getting ready that's angry and the you can see coming out of his nostrils like the smoke, you know, or the almost like fire coming out in a cartoon. It's like that. They are angry at what is taking place, and they make a snap judgment, and they really almost they condemn her. They call her guilty. And I think it's important to see that because to them, this gift is a waste. Like, it's almost like they're sitting up there saying, like, she is so foolish they're going to protect jesus in a way from being looked down upon by letting this woman do this and they're like she is a fool that's what is in their mind the way in which they treat her there there could be a better use of money jesus would never accept that but what they don't understand is they're demeaning jesus by the way in which they respond because this extra extravagant gift is so massive it is shocking to you but it does reveal a great devotion you know i could see man whew, i could see people that uh, myself included saying like does she not know that she may need money for retirement are we going to have to help her later because she's throwing this stuff around on jesus he don't need it anyway he owns it all what's she doing she she's thinking about the wrong things. What does she just want to like make some? Is this some spectacle that she's trying to like make something of herself? Like, why would she do that? I, I could see myself looking and thinking harshly, flaring at the nostril, saying, "This isn't good, and this isn't right." There are a lot of things that could be done with that. We could have sold it, put it in an account, let the S and P five hundred carry it up. Right? It, it's, it's scary to think about where I might be or where you might be. Verse 6, but Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. That would, that would probably stop me quickly. 
and to think, oh my goodness, I have just decided to condemn a woman who Jesus says has done a beautiful thing. She has done something that is beautiful to me. You know, with the disciples, there was a time where they were mad because this guy was preaching the gospel and healing people, I think, in the name of Jesus. And they're fired up in Mark. And Jesus, like, said, if they're not, like, if he's not against us, he's for us. Be quiet. And then he says, like, if somebody took a cup of cold water and gave it to somebody in my name, that's good. And here he's saying, this woman, she has done a shocking thing. She has done a beautiful thing. She has served me with everything that she has. Jesus knows her motive. Jesus knows her motive. He knows that she is offering her, her best, you might say. What, what's interesting is she reminds you of a woman earlier in Mark chapter 12. Do you remember that woman? She brought something less than a penny, the smallest coins, and went and put them in. And Jesus said she gave more than anyone else here. She gave everything she had. She's the one that's a, a disciple. That's what it means to be a follower. It's to see Jesus of greater value than all the treasures of Egypt. That's what it means to be a true follower. It's, it's to consider all that you have and go sell it all just to buy the, the, the field that had the pearl of great price. It's seeing Him as the place in the place of greatest honor. Edward says, in Jesus' sight, an act has value according to its motive and intent, and that, not in its material value, is what makes it serviceable to the kingdom of God. When one acts thus, no gift, not even a mere two lepta, which is those small coins, is meaningless, and no gift, even a year's salary, is wasted. Jesus is treasured in this moment, and he should be. He should be. The work that he is about to do will be an offering that is indescribable. It's, it's an offering of rescue for all who will believe throughout all time. He is about to do the greatest offering and what she offers back to him in comparison is all that she has, but it has no comparison to what he has done. So, verse 7. For you always have the poor with you and whenever you want, you can do good to them, but you will not always have me the scripture i mean not only in the old testament do you see this over and over and over again to help the poor you also have throughout the jesus ministry and life he's helping the downcast the poor those in difficult places and so even israel was told over and over remember where you came from remember what it was like in egypt and then treat people in a way that you would want to have been treated then so jesus blesses the poor the Bible's filled with that commitment. But the issue in verse 7 is not the poor. But, the, but this woman in this place, she, she is serving Jesus in a very powerful way. He's saying, lay that aside for this moment. What she is doing is a proclamation in and of itself, which not only will rescue the poor physically, but will rescue the poor eternally. It was of the highest value and worth. Jesus could say this, not only because he is worthy of this gift that she offers, but because of the, this gift is a proclamation of what he is about to offer. In the hymn, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, Isaac Watts says this in one of the verses. You ready? 
Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a tribute far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. That's, I think that is at the heart of this. This extravagant gift is demonstrating that she alone in that room understands Jesus' incommensurable worth. That, that's what it does. It demonstrates that for us. Then in 8 and 9, she has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. She will be honored even though she was dishonored. She will follow in the footsteps of the Savior who dishonor comes first and honor later. When you think about your own life following Jesus, you could say, you know what? Like, I expect to experience trouble in the present, suffering for the cause of Christ, difficulty. I'm walking in the footsteps of Jesus. But know this on the other side. I will be standing with this victorious king proclaiming the message. And it's a beautiful reminder of that. Jesus knew he was about to be treated in the most heinous way known to man. And he allowed this woman to bless him in this way because that most heinous work that he did, it was of the greatest value to all of humanity for all time. And so I think it's important to see that. And Jesus really, in a very powerful way, he calls them out to the same level that they were saying, like, this shouldn't be done. He says, this should be done. This should be done. I should be honored in this way. She did what was right. She did with what she had. She gave everything to serve me. She is declaring what all of you cannot perceive in the moment. I am about to die. My body does need to be prepared for burial. And it will be the thing that rescues the whole world. It will be the gospel that not only that, the, the, that you disciples will preach, it will be the gospel written down in a form where we will read the Bible and read about her and think about all of those things together. So I would just kind of think to you today, like, what are you doing with your life? When you think about your commitment to the Lord, is it a kind of a deal where it's like um, you always think, well, the, the wise thing to do by the world's standards are, or is it like I, I want to offer myself back to him? I, I, I believe the gospel that Jesus came, that he died, that he rose again on the third day. I believe this message, and then I want to, in light of all that He has done for me, I want to be a living sacrifice. I want to give back to Him. Some of you might look at the way in which you spend your money and you might stop and say, am I giving back to Him not to, make, not to try to get right with Him, but because of all He's done for me, am I offering myself back? Some of you might look at your hands and say, when I look at my hands, do I think they are employed in offering myself back to Him? Some of you may stop and think about your time 
And you think, is, is it, am I giving something that is beautiful to Jesus when I think about my time? I, I mean, some of us are really big about like being careful about our lives and we say, we justify the insignificance of our offering. We justify it. We're real busy right now. You know what? People that tell me like, I'm too busy right now and this time and this time in their life, most of the time they're going to be too busy when they're retired. Their offering back of their lives to Jesus will be like, well, at the end I was just a little too busy for that. The deal is, is your hands and your feet and your resources and all those things. God, God like wants you to see Jesus as the greatest treasure. And he wants you to respond to that, not by saying, well, let me calculate this up and see if it really fits in. He wants you to have a free hand to say, how might I give back to Jesus what I can to show him how much value he is to me? How might that show my kids of the great value that he is to me? How might that be a declaration that I really believe that he is the Savior of the world and he gave his life for me? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the privilege of knowing you. The privilege of hearing the gospel. The privilege of this first person that seems to really in the middle of all of this, get what is about to happen and properly respond with great joy, with an unrelenting like commitment to just laying down oneself, to just serving Jesus, just to give Him all that they are for His glory without a thought for what that will mean for them. We thank You for that. We thank You for that proclamation that He is worthy We pray our lives would be centered in that. That we would be saying to ourselves, He is worthy. He is worthy. We want to offer our lives back, even if it looks foolish, even if people would speak against us in some way, that we would just keep offering our lives back to Him. May we know that that testimony of her life and the one of ours will continue to speak. In Christ's name, amen.